you ask 12 preachers, you will get 13 different opinions on what preaching is supposed to be like, how it's supposed to be sought out, what it's supposed to do, how you're supposed to go from reading a text to preaching, or even if you're supposed to deal with text in that manner. Are we supposed to preach expositionally, looking at passage of Scripture after passage of Scripture and going sequentially through a book? Should we do it topically? Should we simply seek to teach truths and make sure that they are known and proclaim them, or should we apply them to the lives of people? Is it even wrong to try to order such things? When you're in school, they teach you how to preach, or they try to, anyways. Try to figure out what is most important and how to go about achieving that. I'm sure that I learned much in classes, and even though I I don't remember everything that I learned, and I certainly don't put everything I learned into practice, I I have a feeling that those classes were for me much like sermons would be to you. Most of you, if I called you up on Thursday and asked you what I preached on, uh, wouldn't be able to give me an incredibly solid exposition of what I said on Sunday. And I, I want you to know that doesn't offend me, because I sat under preaching for years, and I can't remember any one particular sermon that I listened to. But the, the idea is that you leave transformed. You, you don't have to leave with it put in your memory banks, but hearing the preaching of the word and sitting under it after week after week after week will move you and transform you to be what God has called you to be. I have no doubt that this is what a lot of those preaching classes did for me. That being said, what I do remember are the things that I have chosen not to do. This is kind of the way that it goes. The first thing that I remember regularly ignoring Uh, That always annoyed me in my teaching classes. My one preaching professor always told me, you have to preach with imperatives. Every single point must begin with an imperative. And I simply don't do that. I I think that if the text doesn't warrant it, I'm not going to do that. I don't feel like every single point has to be, do this, be this, act this way, ask these questions, whatever the case might be. Sometimes the Bible is simply declaring things to be true, and they should be declared. The second piece of advice, I'm not just going to bend today, I'm going to snap the thing right off. My preaching professor looked at us and he said, listen, if you have six points, you don't have a sermon, you have two sermons. I have good news for you. You have not one sermon today, not two sermons, but for the price of one sermon, you have three sermons. And if I don't finish in the first 40 minutes today, I grant you a fourth sermon. You are welcome. So we, we have 11 points before us today. I remember back in Christmas, I was joking about uh, having six points in a sermon and uh, that that was ridiculous. And so I, I decided to up the, up the ante. Uh, so any, anyone who comes in in the future has got to do better than 11 points. Um, my, my daughter was worried this morning. I told her, don't worry. It, each point's fairly short, no more than 10 minutes apiece. Some of, you are, some of you are doing the math right now, and, and you're thinking, this is not, this is not what I wanted. Um, you will still be, you'll still be out for lunch, but let us read the text of John 12 and see what we can glean from this important passage of Scripture. John 12, beginning in verse 20. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. 
If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, An angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. This is the word of our God. We have been for some time in the shadow of the resurrection of Lazarus since the beginning of chapter 11, even through our text last week. The image of Lazarus being raised from the grave has been kind of at the forefront of everything we've been doing. But we move from that shadow into a much darker place today. Jesus hears of these Greek people who have come to him and asked for his presence. We have no idea whether Jesus granted them his audience or not, but whatever reason, this clicks in Jesus that now is the time. Now my hour has come upon us. And he begins for the crowds and for us to speak not of his exaltation, but also of his death. The center of the crowd's response for us is instructive. In verse 35, they say, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. Naturally, this is the same crowd who has just welcomed him in as king, welcomed him in as Messiah, as the anointed one, the anointed king who is to come in. They've hailed him as king. That means hailing him as the one and coming Christ. I said, we heard that he must remain forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? What they're doing is trying to work through the logic. They say, hey, we hailed you as Christ. You seem to have taken that on to yourself. And if the Christ lives forever and you are also calling yourself the Son of Man, that means the Son of Man must live forever. But you are now saying that you are going to die. How does this all work? When they ask, who is the Son of Man? They're not looking to another. They want to know how all of this is supposed to be put together. The question, rather literally stated there, doesn't mean exactly what it means. Who do you actually say you are is not quite what they're getting at. What they mean is, how are we supposed to make sense out of all of this? How are we supposed to make sense out of the fact that you seem to be the Christ? You seem to be proclaiming yourself as the Christ now, but you are saying that you are going to die. How can the Son of Man die? Today, we would do well to listen to these verses as Jesus explains his death to us. Eleven things. 11 points, 11 purposes for Jesus to die. First, Jesus must die to bear fruit. Jesus must die to bear fruit. Death has always been a burden and a curse for mankind. Every death is a burden and a curse. 
we can look at some deaths that have proven fruitful for us. Some people are rescued from burning buildings and some people have, have freedoms now because people have lost their lives for those things. But the loss of life is in itself not a good thing. It would be better to have freedom without the loss of life. It would be better to have your life without the loss of someone else's. Eventually, even those people who are saved, even those people who are given those freedom, will eventually die. Death is ultimately fruitless for mankind, except for one death, and that is the death of Jesus. The metaphor is fairly easy to understand. If you put a seed into the ground, that ground, that seed is no longer what it was. It must die. It must become unseed in order to become an oak or in order to become a grain of wheat. It's got to not be what it currently is. And so Jesus makes this case that as he goes to die, he will be like a, a seed that is planted in the ground. And what comes up from that seed is greater than the seed itself. He will bear much fruit. His death will actually bear fruit. It won't just be perceived fruit. It won't be fruit that lasts for a while, but it will be eternal fruit. His death will grant life to those to whom it is applied. It will bear fruit in us. Because not only is he going to be made alive coming up out of that ground, like the seed will eventually push its way out of the ground, but it will bear fruit. That is, it will change the lives and the hearts of people. His death gives us life. And what's more, it is reproduced in us as we ourselves bear fruit for the kingdom of God. Let's remember, Jesus is perfect. There was no reason that he would ever have to die. There was no reason, naturally, that he would have to perish. He has life in himself, as he says in John chapter 5. He certainly has the power over death. He says that I have the ability to give my life. I give it freely so that I may take it up again. He doesn't have to die. And yet he does so, so that he might bear fruit. So that he might bring a people to himself. In redeeming us, he allows us not only to be that fruit, but to bear more fruit ourselves. The work that Jesus does for us in dying frees us from our evil deeds. It cleanses us from our evil conscience. It changes our hearts, and it bears much fruit. Jesus must die to produce fruit. Secondly, Jesus must die to keep life. In verses 26 and 27, we have this great paradox repeated in every single gospel about loving your life and losing it and hating your life and keeping it. Jesus brings this paradox to us so that we might know how to rightly arrange and organize our lives. Listen, if you love your life here, if you hold on to it with everything you have, you protect it, you want to keep the things of your life, you want to keep your own life protected and make sure that you're watching out for yourself best, you will lose it. What God is calling you to is not a selfless hatred of yourself, but a true selfish way of handling things. Do you want what's best for you in this life? Do you truly want to live the best life that you can, not only here, but for the age eternal coming up? What is best for you, friend? Jesus says what is best for you is to let your life go. In this sense, it's like trying to grab water in a moving spring. If you place that spring into your hands and let the water flow through it, trying to grab the water simply removes it from your hand. 
and it refuses, a clenched fist, refuses to allow water into your hands. But if you hold it open and allow it to spill out, God is always good to make it overflow with life. Hold your life loosely. Hold the things of your life loosely and God will provide more to you. The true way to be selfish in this world is to be selfless in the giving of yourself to the world. Jesus isn't just telling us this. He is the prime example of this. He says, you must follow me. If anyone serves me, in verse 26, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. He's saying this in the context of his death. He is marching directly toward the cross. If you will follow him, you must likewise go to the cross. Take up your cross daily and follow him. Die to yourself and live to the demands of God and to honor your brothers and sisters as greater than you. Jesus himself does this. He gives of his life. And what does God do in return? He grants him a resurrection life. He gives him glory and honor that surpasses any other name in the world. We call Jesus the first fruits. We are then the after fruits. What happens to him happens to us. Jesus must die to keep life. Thirdly, Jesus must die to demonstrate a full obedience. He must die to demonstrate a full obedience. Easy obedience is weak obedience. If I went home today and I told my children, children, I want you to find whatever it is you want to eat. I want you to eat as much of it as you can. I want you to sit down in front of the TV and watch as much TV as you want to. If you don't want to do that, I want you to play. If you don't want to do that, I want you to sleep. I want you to do whatever it is you want to do. And when you come over and you watch my kids, whether they're being kind and good or whether they're not, I don't just sit around and say, you see how obedient my kids are? They're doing everything that I've asked them to do. And you'd be like, well, okay, that's, that's a, I guess it's obedience of a kind, but it's a pretty weak obedience. There's not much obedience there. That is not the kind of obedience that Jesus has. If you look in verse 27, he talks about how his soul is troubled. His obedience is a full obedience because it is a difficult obedience. Yes, there is fruit there. His, his life will bear fruit. He knows that. And yes, there is indeed life there. There is even joy there. In Hebrews 12.1, we read that for the joy set before him, Jesus endures the cross. There is even desire there as he says, I want to lay down my life so that I might take it up again. I lay it down on my own accord. I, I want to lay it down. So there is desire there. There is joy there. But there is also endurance. There is also anguish. There is also a sense of terror. It might be something that he wants to do, but it doesn't mean that it's easy. The task that stands before Jesus is daunting. It is difficult. It is filled with anguish and turmoil. It is a tough obedience, and therefore it is a full obedience. Hebrews 2.10 says, It was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. That is an incredibly important passage. He is perfected through suffering. That doesn't mean that Jesus wasn't perfect before. It means that his obedience was perfected through suffering, that he showed the full obedience that he could show by giving his life even unto death. His obedience was perfect and complete precisely because it was the most difficult obedience that he could be called to. And for that, it must be at least troubling Jesus says, my soul is troubled. 
because Jesus must die to demonstrate a full obedience. Fourth, Jesus must die to fill his purpose. He must die to fulfill his purpose. From the very beginning, this was the purpose of his coming. John gets up and one of the first things that he says about this man who is walking the earth is, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, if you aren't familiar with Christianity and you're not familiar with the Bible, you might ask, I don't know what they mean by a lamb taking away the sin of the world, but if you heard the passage that we had our prayer of repentance from today, if you are reading our Bible plan and going through Leviticus, you realize that this is always the way that God had set up for his people to be forgiven for their sins. It was through the death of an animal. For Jesus to be the lamb who would take away the sin of the world means that he is the lamb who is offered for the sin of the world. It was the purpose of for him to come. He was born in order to die. Christmas is filled with hope and glory, and it is good, but Christmas will always be secondary. A necessary bit, but secondary. Sure, he must come alive as a human being in order to die, But the purpose of Christmas was always to lead us to Good Friday, and the purpose of Good Friday is always to lead us to Resurrection Sunday. Christmas might introduce us to hope and to redemption. Good Friday and Easter Sunday seal it for us. Jesus must die to fulfill his purpose. Fifth, Jesus must die to glorify God. In verse 28, Father, he says, glorify your name. We often complain about our lot. We often complain about other people's lot. We often complain about the way we are treated by God. We offer grumblings and prayers up to him filled with grumblings. And these are not always wrong. I'm not even going to tell you that they're wrong. The Bible is filled. David prays like that. You ought to pray to him like that. But there is a sense, at least somewhere in all of that grumbling, that nothing ever happens to us that we do not deserve. Anything shy of our own death is not something that we deserve. Okay? So we can grumble about it and take those complaints up to God and ask God why and beg for mercy and ask for him to move, but, but we deserve death. Even in our talking about genocide this morning, as God has commanded his people to come in, people complain about that. They say, well, this is just wholly unfair. This is what every dictator uses to to manifest his own desire for genocide that God told him to. You can complain about it, and you can grumble about it. But if you're going to complain about the conquest in Joshua, or you're going to complain about what Samuel does in the book of 1 Samuel, at least put your finger there and go back and understand why the Bible says it from Genesis 3. Every single one of us is due death. And anything that we get short of death is nothing but mercy from God, whatever that might be. But Jesus isn't like that. Jesus isn't sinful. He isn't weighed down with his sin. Jesus has rightly confessed that he always does what is pleasing to the Father. Back in John 8, 29. In other Gospels, God continually speaks over him at his baptism and at his transfiguration. I am pleased in him. He has never done anything to bring God's displeasure upon him. If anyone had the right to stand up before God and to cry out, this is unfair, you shouldn't do this to me, it is Jesus. Because what is happening to him will be unjust. What is happening to him is indeed unfair. Our sin 
is nothing less than a declaration, even Adam's sin on down. All of our sin is nothing less than a declaration that what we want is more important than what God wants. Our desires are better than his. They are good. They are more blessed than what God would be wanting or could possibly give to us. This is exactly why Eve eats the fruit and exactly why Adam takes after her. She sees that the fruit is good and she thinks that she has a better way of understanding the world than God does. All of our sin is exactly the same thing. In other words, we're saying, he is not glorious. He is not filled with good for us. He is not capable of giving us all the blessing that we desire. So Jesus' act of obedience is the ultimate way in which he can glorify God. For while it is indeed unfair and unjust, he does it anyway. He is willing to give his life for the will of the Father because the Father has sent him for this very purpose. He does this, yes, because he loves you, but he does it because he desires the will of the Father more. Even while his death is unjust, he thinks it is better to obey the Father and to trust in his good plan than to cry out, it is unfair. Because he believes that the Father is worthy of his death, even if it's an unjust death. Doing the Father's will is more important than keeping his life. He says, Father, glorify your name. If he believes that the Father's glory is more worthwhile than even his life, we ought to see something of the glory of God in this. While we refuse to live lives that we don't deserve for God's glory, he is willing to give up a life and take on unjust punishment precisely to proclaim that glory. Jesus must die to glorify God. Sixth, Jesus must die to reveal the glory of the blessed Trinity. Amazingly, a voice answers from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. It doesn't seem like anyone might have understood the voice. People think it's thunder. People think it's an angel. But Jesus tells us exactly what it is. This voice is for us. It's for us to understand. What does the Father mean? One, that he has indeed glorified his name. His name is glorified already by the works that Jesus Christ has done. He has shown his son works. His son then does all of the work that his father has shown him, and he will show him even more powerful things than this, he says back in the fifth chapter. The father is glorified by the obedience of the son. But realize for just a moment what it means for God to be glorified through the work of this son. It is only because of the value and the goodness of the Son that the true value of God the Father can be seen. Without the Son, the true glory of the Father would never be known. It is because the Son is laying down a life, not of some value, not of high value, but of infinite value. He has a life in and of himself that is perfect and holy and righteous before God of infinite worth and value to the Lord God himself. And instead of holding it, for the glory of God gives it over to magnify and to show the glory that God has in and of himself. The only way that God and his glory is fully and truly known is by having a son of infinite worth to give him glory. It is the glorious nature of the son that highlights and emphasizes the glorious nature of the father. Without a truly glorious son, the father would never be seen as truly glorious. So in the giving of his own life to magnify the glory of God and to truly reveal the glory of God, he shows us not just the glory of the Father, he shows us his own glory. It is right, 
that the Son is glorified by the Father and the Father by the Son. It cannot be any other way. If the Father wasn't glorious, he would not be worthy of the Son's death. If the Son were not glorious, his death would not give the Father the glory that he deserved. It is only in dying that we get this beautiful glimpse into the heart of the glory of the Trinity. Hebrews 1.3 says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the perfect image of it. He is the exact imprint of his nature. Colossians 1.19 says, In him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. It is only because of these things that he can even come close to demonstrating and showing us the glory of God. Jesus must die to reveal the glory of the blessed Trinity. Seventh, Jesus must die to judge the world. In verse 31, we read this. Now is the judgment of this world. And now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Now is the judgment of the world. As we read through the next couple of chapters, and especially as we get to the trial and the crucifixion of Jesus, you might be led astray thinking that that trial is actually about Jesus. That trial is not just about Jesus. That trial is about you. That trial is about the world. It's very easy for us to think that Jesus is, as the Brits would say, in the dock, that he is the one being put on trial. He is the one who is being prosecuted here and seeing if he matches up to the standards of the day. And indeed, there's one way of thinking about that, that that is what's going on. Will he follow the rules and the statutes laid down by the Pharisees? Will he toe the party line? Will he force them to punish him? But rather, what Jesus is doing is putting the world at trial. Would you be able to know and perceive God if he stood in front of you in flesh? Would you listen to God if he were to speak to you? Would you obey God, whatever he might command you? Would you rather do away with God and seek the end of him if given the opportunity? And presenting himself to the Jews like a lamb before the slaughter, Jesus allows them to do with him what he will and to demonstrate what they think of God. He is in fact saying before them, are you worthy of me? Are you worthy of God? Are you worthy of condemnation? And they crucify him because they are presiding over that trial. And in crucifying him, they show that they themselves are worthy of crucifixion. They are showing that they hate God just as we did that they fight against God just as we had done. That given all other opportunities, we would rather not have God looming over us because we are not obedient, we are not wise, we are not careful, and we are not prudent. We are judged. And just like King Belshazzar, we are found wholly wanting. The crucifixion of Jesus, therefore, inverts all of those expectations. It is nothing less than the condemnation of the world. In Jesus' death, we see our own condemnation, both for evil and for good. Jesus must die to judge the world. Later in that same verse, we find out that Jesus must die to cast out Satan. He says, now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Let it be no surprise that Satan is indeed the ruler of the world. In his temptations in Matthew and in Mark and in Luke, he has offered all of the nations. He's taken up to a high mountain, shown all of the nations. And Satan looks at him and says, hey, if you want to, you can have all of these. Just kneel to me, bow before me, worship me, and I will give them to you. 
It's not much of a temptation if Jesus would have thought, you don't have the right to give them to me. It's an empty promise. If he knows it's an empty promise, it's not much of a temptation. It's a temptation because it is truly a real offer. Satan came into the rulership of the world when man put it in his rulership. Adam and Eve, again, listening to the voice of the snake instead of to the voice of their God, has put him in charge over the world. We put him over us. Any time we might listen to his words over the words of God, any time we give our allegiance to him and allow him to rule over us, we all have done this. He rules to this day. He guides the hearts and the desires of men. He leads them astray. He provides injustice whenever he possibly can. He deceives the nations and all peoples. He murders, he lies, he drives out all comfort, peace, and joy. Look around the world. It is filled with distress. It is filled with evil. It is filled with disgusting acts of violence. That is the work of one who rules over the world. Yet in his death, Jesus defeats him. And this is a really odd thing. It's, it's a lot like saying the way in which you're going to win that baseball game is by giving up more runs. Like saying the way that you're going to have victory in chess is by laying down your king. This is the one weapon that Satan has. It's death. How can Jesus cast out Satan by dying? He allows Satan to use the only weapon he has. He wields death and judgment through the hearts of men who are wicked and rightly or wrongly hate Jesus. But in doing that, Jesus does the one thing that Adam was unwilling to do. He shows, again, that full obedience. And in showing his full obedience before God, Satan wields the only weapon he has so that Jesus might make his obedience complete. Adam chooses not to follow the Lord his God. Adam chooses to go down his own path, to do his own desires, to follow the desires of his wife, to follow the desires of that snake. Jesus does not. And by being wholly obedient to him, he puts God back in his rightful place. And with God in his rightful place, Jesus can reign in his rightful place. And as such, Satan begins to lose his dominion. He is cast out. And as people are redeemed and placed into the kingdom of Jesus Christ, no longer does Satan have reign and rulership over the world. The evil king is deposed. And the great king Jesus will reign in might, even in his death. Jesus must die to cast out Satan. Nine, Jesus must die to draw all people to himself. He says in verse 32, When I am lifted up from the earth... It's easy for us to see that when he's lifted up from the earth, it might mean his glorification when he's taken up into heaven, but Jesus quite clearly means this as being lifted up on the cross. Not only does he take it this way, even the crowds take it this way. John tells us he means it this way because he says it's not about his glorification. He's doing this to tell us what kind of death he was going to die. This is a really quite a stunning statement. Certainly not understood until after his resurrection. It's interesting that already the nations are coming to him. The whole reason why this passage has started is because Greeks, not Jews, not even Hellenistic Jews who happen to speak Greek, but most likely Greek converts or near converts to Judaism. 
they've heard of Jesus and they come to him. And it is their coming, foreign peoples coming to Jesus, which remarks that you haven't seen anything yet. Yes, they are starting to come, but they will come all the more once I am lifted up on the cross. Indeed, all men, not meaning without distinction, but all men without exclusion, whether they be Greek or whether they be Jew, whether they be barbarian, whether they be French or English or Russian or Czechoslovakian or African, all people will come to see him. Those from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language will come to adore this one who has died for them. Only the gospel, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ can truly draw all men to him. It is only the promise of the forgiveness of sins, only the promise of a clean conscience, only the purging of evil from us, only victory finally and fully over the grave, a new life being granted to you that will truly draw men to Jesus. It isn't the fact that he can do miracles. It's not the fact that he, he was shown to be powerful in the life he lived. It's that his death was more powerful than any of those could ever be. While many might have heard of Jesus' greatness, that will only take them so far. Sinful men will not follow Jesus to the cross. His greatest disciples, those who were closest to him, will deny him three times. They will leave him to his fate. Friend, I, I, I warn you, don't think of yourself more pridefully than you ought. Be humble and admit that Peter, in all of his weakness, was probably stronger than you. It is because Jesus dies that he draws all people to himself. He must die to do so. Tenth, Jesus must die to force your decision in verse 35, he says, Walk while you have light, lest the darkness overtake you. Jesus is only going to be with them for so long, and he wants them to solidify in their hearts what they're going to do. They must make a decision to follow him now, or it might be too late. He's clear. So long as you are in the dark, you're going to have no idea where you're going. You can't bring a flashlight with you. If you are in the dark in the first century, it is dark indeed. You do not know where you're going. You do not know if you're going into a pit. You don't know if you're walking off a cliff. And Jesus dies to force your hand. He said, you need to decide to follow the light. But the question, friends, is where is that light taking you? The steps of Jesus Christ from this point on out are directly and inexorably toward his death. He is going to the end of his life. This is where he is asking you to follow him. Only in following Jesus will you have the knowledge to do as you ought to do. Only in trusting him are you willing to obey him without hesitation. Only by trusting him will you know what you're really doing with your life. It's only by, by knowing that I'm to give my life in the service for others. These are the things that God has called you to. He hasn't called you to success in a corporation. He's not called you to monetary wealth. He's not called you to a number of the things that we chase after. He has called you to live a life of obedience to him. Because that is precisely what Jesus Christ has done. If you follow in his footsteps, if you trust that what Jesus has done is good and you yourself will follow in those, giving up your life for others, living to honor your brother and your sister above yourself, to bear their burdens, to take care of them, to seek what is best for them, then you are following Jesus. For many people, Jesus is fine to follow so that he requires, so long as he requires nothing from us and is willing to give us everything we want. 
But his death means that we have to be willing to give our lives as well. His death forces a better decision from you. You cannot follow him, truly follow him, and not be led to giving up your life. His death demonstrates this. Will you do as Jesus has done what is commanded of you? In your relationships, will you seek to honor others above yourself? At work, will you seek to work as unto the Lord and not as unto the masters who stand above you? In your thoughts, will you extol and glorify God as truly great and mighty? In your loves, will you seek his kingdom first? In all of your possessions, knowing full well that they are not yours, they are his, but that even in being his, they are also yours? That even in giving them up, you don't truly lose them? Are you willing to live this way? Many who refuse this, thinking that they can sit on the fence half-heartedly following Jesus, are not walking in the light. They are walking in the dark, and they are fooling themselves. They have no idea where they are going. Jesus dies to force your decision. Follow him and let the light triumph over the darkness, or simply walk in darkness. Lastly, Jesus must die to grant us adoption. Jesus says that while you have the light, walk in it, lest the darkness overtake you. In verse 36, while you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of the light. This harkens us all the way back to the first chapter in John's prologue where he says this, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. The darkness cannot triumph over it. It can't win over it. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Jesus is holding no less out to you now. Follow in Jesus so that the darkness does not overcome you. Follow in Jesus. Believe in him. Trust in him. And he will give you the right to be called sons of light. He will give you the right, the ability, and the power to be called sons of the Most High God. And as sons of the light, you realize that the light will never leave you. There is no more walking in darkness for those who are sons of light. They carry the light with them. You will always have the spirit of the Son with you. You'll always have the Holy Spirit leading you and guiding you. He will always give you the purpose and the meaning, the love, the comfort, and the joy that you need. Now, they're not always all going to be recognizable as comfort, joy, and peace, and happiness. You're not going to experience these things as much as you possibly can. But there is a sense, a real sense, in which they will always be with you. This is the promise. If you are sons of the light, the light will never leave you. The road might be difficult, but it will be obvious. As we are, and our natural selves outside of Jesus, you are never going to be a child of God. You cannot possibly be God's children. For outside of the death of Jesus, our sins are not cleansed, our hearts are not remade, our minds are not transformed, and we will never belong to God in that state. But belonging to Jesus, trusting in Jesus, walking as Jesus walked, realizing that his death has paid our sins, that his life is our life, and we ought to do our best to walk in line with him. Not that we earn our righteousness by the way we walk, but we seek to walk that way precisely because he is our righteousness. And doing that, 
Jesus' death grants us adoptions that we might call upon God as our own Father. Friends, there's 11 reasons. There are many more. Jesus' death is not some sort of a sideshow in Christian theology. It has always and will always stand at the very center of everything that we believe. All four Gospels, each of them, make the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus not just the climax of Jesus' story, not just the climax of all of history, but the central focus of everything that they do. Every miracle that he performs, every life that he saves, every time that he walks on water, every speaking engagement that he takes up, every single one of them are done with an eye to the fact that he is going to die. Let us not be deceived. If Jesus were not to die for us, we would have nothing in this world. We would have no hope. You would have no peace. You would have no true father. You would have no victory over Satan or over the grave. You would have no way of understanding the Trinity no way of truly knowing God. There would be no gospel. There would be no good news. There would be no salvation for you. We ought, it is right, good, and holy to proclaim it loudly, strongly, boldly, and humbly. This is not our work. It is his. Jesus Christ, as we rightly profess, came into this world to save sinners. And he came into this world to save sinners by his death on the cross. That death is in our place. That death is for our sins. It is all by grace, all by mercy. May this be the gospel that we believe, that we proclaim, and that we treasure.